0: This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, performed by, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence. Uh, And, guys, recently someone brought it to my attention that I had not provided any sort of way to contact me on the podcast. Uh, that was my mistake, sorry about that, and that seemed like a good chance for me to plug something else about Maxine the Planets Unknown, and that is that uh, every episode of Maxine comes with uh, artwork that has been created just for that episode, uh, based on the content of that episode, uh, and all of this can be found at my website that I keep for my art and my graphic design as well as uh it's where the podcast audio files for Maxine are hosted on their own page there and that website is bradlawrenceartist.com it's all one word bradlawrenceartist.com and there is also a contact page there so if you want to get in touch with me for any reason whatsoever Feel free to do so. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, just visit me at Brad dot And now uh, for today's episode. So, this is Maxine and the Planet's Unknown, Episode 18, Chapters 39, 40, and 41. Chapter 39. Maxine did not know what she was. She knew what she was doing. She was drifting in a swirling eddy around the top of the giant mountain that someone she had known once long ago called BGDGF-85. She understood that she was cold, but she could not see. There were no eyes to see with up here. Then she was seeing. She thought to see, and then she saw. She was looking at the top of the mountain from the eyes of an animal that flew, gliding on the wind from somewhere not that far below the mountain's peak. She was also looking at the mountain from the eyes of an animal that had been grazing on one of its slopes, but had stopped what it was doing and raised its head. Then she was seeing it from a troop of tree-climbing little beasts that lived in a tall forest in a nearby valley and she could feel its sharp, thin coldness again. She felt thin up here, like there was not much to her, or like she was more space than substance. She searched for something more to be at the mountaintop. Everything she was there felt stolid, frozen, glacial. No fun. She liked the thing that flew. That was a fun thing to be. Then she was the thing that flew. There were no names for things. She was the thing that flew, and if she let her mind spread out, or more to the point, allowed other minds to rise to the surface of her mind, then she was many, many things that flew. But that got to be a cacophony of color and light and darkness and sleep and wakefulness and trees and ground and air and hunting and being hunted. It got to be all of that very quickly. So she was just the one thing that flew. She could feel the pull of being everything, and she also knew it would destroy her. It was like looking over a cliff and feeling a dim urge to take just one step forward. She had read in a book once that the fear of heights was not the fear of falling, but the desire to jump and the fear that you'd actually do it. This global consciousness had that kind of quality. She could reach for it, Reaching for it was definitely a thing in her power, and if she did, her mind would scream itself apart. She would lose herself in the never-ending broil of all flooding noise and sights and feelings and tastes and an infinite number of needs and desires and dimly understood urges. It would happen faster than she could calculate. After that, there would be no more quotes from books or remembered acquaintances or a life before the squall of total dissipation. There would be no more Maxine. Now she was water. She was trickling over a stream bed, and she knew that just ahead was a raging river, and she would join that river, and then she would rage toward an ocean that was seven days away. She knew that because just as she was the water in the stream, she was also the water in the river, and she was also the water in the ocean. But how was she the water? Water wasn't alive. There you go again. From your point of view, life is uh, what's happening to you or to something else that moves around and has eyeballs that are cute. But life is a process that interconnects things, all of them dependent on one another, all of them flowing in and out, through and around one another. Each thing vibrates against the next, and am I the force that understands those vibrations or am I the vibrations themselves? I say to you that it does not matter. Life is interconnected. Remove that connection. And all of this just grinds to a halt, like a clockwork man in a London exhibition hall with its key removed. Maxine raised an eyebrow of a sort. She was a tall foraging creature now, something that was built for running with long legs and three hardened toes that it used to kick at the grass and get to the sweet roots near the prairie floor. This creature had a sort of eyebrow and Maxine sort of raised it, at Mr. Humphreys' clockwork man reference. Mr. Humphreys was standing next to her. He was really getting into the part. He raised an eyebrow right back. That's right. I know all about London. I know everything your people in your spaceship can know. Everything you brought here is now a part of me, and I can take it or leave it just as I please, just like the ones that came before. Maxine shuddered as the implication of that statement started to come home for her. Then she was swirling and moving, whipping through the air. No, she was the air. They were the air, and there was no separating her and Mr. Humphreys and Oxlis and the wind itself, and she, they, it were a living torrent. Then... She was a small, nervous creature crouching in tall grass, staring furtively at the bulk of the Contiki. Mr. Humphreys bent down to speak to her. Come along! I have something to show you! Chapter 40 They walked in silence for some time, Laurent and Sumner. That might have been the case with them regardless of their circumstances, both being people who were not inclined to speak unless there was something that needed to be said. He was a constable and she was a soldier, and they knew what they needed to do. They needed to find Maxine. That simple goal and the fact that for the moment they had a clear direction to go in, that was enough information to get them moving and keep them moving. But Sumner was also keenly aware that the planet could mess with their mind, and that the woman walking behind him with a big stick had already shown that her judgment could be lethally compromised. He decided there was something that needed to be said after all. He needed to have more information about what was happening behind him as they walked, her tone of voice, how close it was, Whether or not it had the strained quality of someone lifting a heavy bludgeoning object high over their head, this could all be valuable input right about now. Also, in his experience with people he'd arrested for things, getting them talking seemed to calm them down and take them out of their current situation a bit. Uh, Lieutenant, is that what you want me to call you? There was a silence behind him. The question had come out as awkward. She was probably trying to figure out why he had decided to make small talk at all. Or she was about to murder him. One or the other. Uh, sure. Uh, no. Call me Laurent. The tone of voice was distracted and offhand. Laurent, then. Uh, where are you from? Or where were you from before? Mars. Uh, northwest sector. You know anything about Mars? Sumner shrugged. A little. They teach us Earth and Mars history in high school, and a little geography. Hmm, Lauren said. I'm from New Oregon, the Valdez settlement. They reached a spot where the stream bank narrowed and they had to walk in the water for a bit. Their feet sloshed along. A vacuum stretched out and it was obvious that she had been about as forthcoming as she intended to be. Sumner was in pain, sick of being wet, and still kept finding bits of person on him. So he really didn't feel like talking about himself right now. What's it like? He said. What? Valdez Settlement, where you're from. She thought about that for a bit. All of Mars is kind of the same. Again, silence. Jesus. This was like pulling teeth. How's that? Everything comes out of the same box. People make a big deal out of where they're from, what territory which dome, the settlement they were born in, it all seems like a big deal when you're there. But once you get away start to actually do something with your life, it all seems pretty arbitrary. Especially once you start getting to know people from from other places. Well, that was Sumner stepping in it. There probably wasn't avoiding the fact that all of her friends had just died a grisly death. He doubted it was particularly far from the top of her mind no matter what kind of sparkling conversation it could provide. They walked in a silence even more freighted now. There was a dogleg in the stream, and as they came around the second bend, they rousted a flock of flying creatures from the brush on the far side of the bank. Some supposed birds was as good a word as any, though they didn't have feathers as far as he could tell, nor beaks. They were quick and light, though, a flurry of yellow and blue movement and flapping and ruffling sounds. Sumner had a brief half-second of wonder. He was on a planet for the first time, after all. And there were just things that moved and lived and made this place their home. There was not random life inside a colony ship. All life in a colony ship was accounted for at all times. It was shocking to be in a place where life just went on of its own accord, and it should have been, would have been in any other situation, an awe-inspiring experience. Instead, the emotion that immediately descended after the glimpse of that wonder was one of justified paranoia and a leaped combat readiness. He watched the creatures wheel into the sky, becoming silhouettes in the sun, and got himself ready to fight off the inevitable attack from the air. He was certain that at any minute they would turn around and begin suicide bombing them from on high. They did not. They disappeared, and Sumner, crouched and ready to fight, found himself the recipient of a puzzled expression from Laurent. As I, uh, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the animals on this planet can be uh, highly aggressive. Okay. Sumner turned back to the direction they'd been headed in. After they had walked for a bit, Sumner found himself with a genuine question. Do they uh, have animals on Mars? Wild animals, I mean. There was quiet behind him, and then finally Laurent said, Kinda. They aren't wild like on Earth, where shit just runs around any place there isn't people. But there are what they call preserves in most of the major domes. They're like these sealed areas where animals from Earth can just kind of do their thing in these habitat spaces that are supposed to be just like the ones they would have come from. From what I understood, a lot of animals had almost died out on Earth and and were saved by moving them to Mars preserves. Sumner thought about this. Did you visit these preserves? We went to the one in our dome a couple of times. The, the preserves are expensive, so we didn't go much. Ours was the New Oregon Arctic Preserve. It had all these animals that would have lived in cold places, so they kept the habitat real cold, too. It'd be normal Mars dome temperature while you're standing in line, and then you'd, you'd get to the entrance, and they'd give you the thickest, heaviest coat you'd ever seen. I was a little kid, but they had them in all sizes. And you go through this door, and suddenly there's snow everywhere, which we only ever saw in a VR, so that by itself was crazy. Then you'd get on this elevated tram, and it would ride you around the place so you could see all the animals. There were wolves and white rabbits and a polar bear, all just walking around like they weren't a billion miles from where they should be. My favorite was the penguins. They were cute, and I was nine, so cute was a huge selling point. Laurent left out the part where, later in the afternoon at the overpriced concession stand, she had spilled her hot chocolate, and her father had popped her with the back of his hand and called her an ungrateful dummy. Penguins are cute, and a spilled hot chocolate gets you a smack across the face in public. That's what she'd taken away from the day. "'I've never seen a penguin,' Sumner said thoughtfully. "'Hell, I've never really seen any of those things.' Well, said Laurent, maybe this planet has something like a penguin. Sumner shuddered to think what kind of nightmare creature an oxalus penguin would turn out to be. This was about when they started to notice the crystal outcroppings. Neither of them said anything, even though they were striking and beautiful. Sumner felt the brief tug of that wonder again, And he assumed that Laurent wasn't immune to that either. But it seemed like neither of them wanted to give in to the natural beauty of the place. Both of them had fallen into a grudging mood. They wound their way through the growing spires in silence. Eventually they came to the mouth of the cave. Sumner pulled out his device. It was waterproof and impact resistant, but it had seen better days. Still, it pulled up the map where he had pinned Maxine's last recorded location. It was about two feet beyond the cave entrance, about ten feet from where they stood. Sumner turned to Laurent. Well, it looks like this is our destination. I'm guessing she went in there and that something about those cave walls is blocking the signal. Are you good to move forward? Laurent seemed confused by the question. In her mind, they were on an assignment. That was how she was able to compartmentalize the horror she had already experienced. You give a soldier a task, and they complete that task. They can think about how many lives it cost after the task is done. Yep, was all she said. Then her expression hardened as she raised the club she had fashioned into a striking position. For a moment, Sumner thought, Well, I knew this was coming. Then he noticed that Laurent was looking past him. Sumner turned to find a hulking lump of brown shaggy fur and gray-green scales crouched on top of the rise above the cave entrance. The sun was behind it, so Sumner had to squint to get any details. One thing he could see was that it was breathing heavy and making a kind of panting growling sound like it had traveled some distance and fast. As Sumner and Laurent watched, the beast rose up to a little over Sumner's own height, revealing a broad rack of shoulders and a thick chest. It put its arms out to the side, palms up to the sky, revealing enormous jagged claws. It opened a moth full of sharp incisors and let out a noise that was part scream, part howl, Part hoot that sent small creatures scurrying from where they'd been hiding. When it looked back to Sumner and Laurent with eyes set wide apart so that they seemed to flank the dagger-laden jaws, those eyes seemed full of murder. Flatly, Laurent said, So is that one of those aggressive animals you were talking about? Chapter 41 Deputy Cole was hardly the only history buff on the Contiki. There were plenty of people on the ship that were obsessed with where they had come from, which is natural enough for people whose entire lives are defined by the fact they are going somewhere. For some of them, this amounted to a kind of fascination with their family tree, or with some ethnic community that they felt they were... Genealogically tied to. For this reason, there was a small but dedicated Gaelic language club, a language that by that point was only spoken in such clubs. Similarly, there was a Kente Weaving Club, a Salsa Club, and a Barbecue Styles of North America Club. Given the size of the population of the Contiki, There was often considerable overlap in club membership. In fact, all the clubs mentioned shared one member, that being Sandra Constantine, who was also the president of the Greek Literature Club. For those that were in it for the history, most had a focus on some specific period that held a fascination for them. Cole had chosen his focus out of a need to be useful, but most would have been hard-pressed to say why they were fixed on the period that had captured their imagination. It was a bit like falling in love. You just kind of did, and all attempts to explain the how or the why came after the fact and were never quite sufficient. Malcolm Everett, who had spent the last several days huddled in the bathroom with his wife and daughter in cold cans of food they had gathered up as they compulsively retreated from the outside world was enamored of the period of the first United States Civil War. He knew everything there was to know on the conditions that led up to it. The physical and economic brutality of the slave trade, the events that opened the way for Abraham Lincoln's election and eventual assassination, the viciousness of the warfare, all of that was rattling around in his brain. Kishana McIntyre would probably have been considered one of the foremost experts in the global Earth depression of the 22nd century, had she any desire to engage with any of the major omninet universities that doled out such recognition. If you wanted to dive into the economic disparity, the terrible labor practices, the unregulated financial speculation, or any of the other things that led to, first, food shortages, Then, bloody riots in the streets, and finally, to the massive Martian immigration wave that left many Earth-based industries hobbled, she was your woman. Of course, at that particular moment, she was huddled in her bathroom, out of food by almost three days, and was now hovering above an internal gulf of gray non-consciousness. But a little consciousness was all that Oxylus needed. Then, there was Judy Mondavari, who, by day, was a high school English teacher, but at night was a relisher of man-made environmental disasters going all the way back through the Cahokia Mounds of 14th century America. Did you want to know about the California megafire of 2163? How about the Chernobyl disaster of 1986? If you wanted, she could compare and contrast that with the Fukushima reactor disaster of 2011. What about the North Sea heat wave of 2114 to 2122 that brought about the near total depopulation of everything from Scotland to Murmansk Oblast and an unprecedented spike in skin cancer cases all across the European Union? and that has been long cited as one of the most devastating and unforeseen consequences of global climate change. Old Judy could give you fatality figures for almost all of these events with a somewhat ghoulish kind of glee. Judy was an interesting party guest. Not that Judy would be going to any parties. Soon, Judy would likely be joining a casualty list of her own but there was still enough brain function for Mr. Humphreys' purposes. The citizens of the Contiki had provided Mr. Humphreys with everything he needed, he felt, to make Maxine understand what was coming and why it was coming. This conscious aspect of the oxalus, this small and siphoned-off part of itself, was finding all of this quite novel. The direct contact with another creature, paying attention to something, interacting. It had been a whim, a sudden impulse that it had acted upon. And from that, unexpected things had followed. Usually, when unexpected things happened, the planet isolated those things and choked them off and killed them with only the most cursory nod towards coalesced attention make no mistake oxlos had long since given up on trying to control every little thing its routine destruction of the foreign and the unknown if you could call something that happened every few thousand or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years routine that was not about control it was about preserving the processes of the planet itself It had realized the near total collapse into global desolation and personal suicide that it had very nearly brought about had stemmed from an attempt to manipulate the essential exchanges of resources and energy that made life possible. Life needed to die and be reborn, transform and disintegrate and reconstitute, grow until it found its limit, and then degrade to become the raw resources for new and different growth that would expand those limits. Small things lived fast and died quick, large things lumbered toward the grave, and Oxlis assumed that someday its billions of years would come to an end as well. But in the meantime, it was the custodian of the processes that fed the life that inhabited it and that it inhabited. It had mistakenly believed when it was young that those processes were the enemy, the force that it needed to push back so that change could not threaten it. Then it realized the changes themselves were it, that the processes were part of healthy growth. That is when it came to understand its role. It was the world. It was the life of this world. And it was the protector of the life of this world. And with that, it had set a watch for the random and the uninvited. It guarded the process of life and death jealously. And when it encountered the foreign, the civilizations it had shown Maxine and many others besides those, when it explored them and brought their stories into its knowing, it inevitably saw a history of destruction and horror. A legacy of processes interrupted and manipulated, and the raw materials of worlds without end twisted and refined into the inert and dead things that those small invaders always seem to find so useful. But not here. Not ever. It had never needed to explain this to anyone or anything. It had never had that kind of relationship with another thing. But then this had happened, the girl, the whim, and now it was off on something unexpected. Inevitably, it would have to kill the girl, just as it would have to kill all the people on the ship. That could not be avoided. But in the meantime, it had this strange thing happening. It had this, yes, there, there's the word again, relationship. Relationships were weird. It was like a process. It had very similar attributes to a process in that it, there was a kind of exchange and there was growth. But processes, if you understood them, the way that the global consciousness that was the oxalus behind the Mr. Humphreys, if you understood them on that level, billions of years worth of understanding, you knew what to expect. Even if each iteration was unique and specific, you could map the way one thing affected the next thing, setting the processes in motion. In turn, that would tell you where the processes were going. It was in this way that a relationship differed from a process. You weren't entirely sure where it was going or what came next. It was exciting. But now, as Maxine drifted along beside it, riding the air currents of its own consciousness, it realized that it wanted to bring her into a more direct interaction. It was about to move on to the next stage of Maxine's understanding, but it found itself curiously wanting to see her react in a way that felt like a communion with the form that it had taken on for her benefit. It had gotten this idea from its explorations of her own brain. There was this notion of two creatures being a thing that it was now finding it wanted to explore. Oddly, it was something that was kind of foreign to Maxine herself. It dug around in her mind trying to find a real analog from her own history, but there wasn't any. Maybe that was why she held the notion in this weird sort of special and secret esteem. It was like it was in this deep and hidden and glowing part of her consciousness that seemed to be reserved for idealized versions of wonderful things that she assumed everyone else got and that she would never get and therefore no one could ever know that she didn't have it nor that she wanted it. In that place... She held many idealized versions of this thing, and it was from that stockpile that it had pulled the form it had chosen to appear to her in in the first place. Now, Oxalus hit upon an idea that it found delightful. Another small feeling that was new and interesting. It was about to be clever. It should be understood that none of this was real in the sense of existing in the physical world. In the physical world, Maxine, or at least her body, was flat out on its back, entirely alone, deep in a dark and winding system of caves. But Oxalus had taken Maxine's consciousness for a ride. It had piggybacked her brain onto the nearly limitless web of perception that was itself, and that allowed it to play fast and loose with some of the things that she perceived. Before we go any further, there's something I want to do, something I want to show you, Miss Maxine. Oxlus brought them into the entirely deserted interior of the Contiki, and it was here that it showed Maxine, just as it was showing her itself as Mr. Humphreys, a version of herself. It directed her to stop and to stand still on feet that were not there, and to look at her reflection in a shop window on the promenade, which she did. And whether it existed for her to actually see or not, she saw indeed. And what she saw staring back at her was the face of Selina Simon. Mishmack Or... Perhaps you'd prefer Miss Shalina. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.